Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at MarksDailyApple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at PrimalBlueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, excited to talk to Paul Saladino, MD. Now, you previously have heard him talk with Mark Sisson on episode 358 of the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's also a great video interview you can check out on YouTube. But he's back on the show. We're going to talk about his new book called The Carnivore Code, coming out tomorrow, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on science and the application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many whom were told that their conditions were untreatable. He also has a podcast called Fundamental Health. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Al. It's great to be here. So this is such a huge movement for a reason, because there are astounding results. And I guess um, for people who don't know who you are or are listening to this for the first time, Tell us about how you even thought about going in this direction, because it's a hardcore paradigm that most people don't think about. Yeah, so I'm a traditionally trained MD. I went to medical school at the University of Arizona, did my residency at the University of Washington. Prior to going to medical school, I was a physician assistant in cardiology. But the reason I went back to medical school was because of the time that I'd spent as a PA. What I saw during those years was a lot of really amazing physicians and a lot of really bad paradigms within Western medicine, meaning that what we'd been taught to do when I was at PA school, what doctors had been taught to do was to give pills to treat symptoms without really being prodded, without really being challenged to ask questions around what was the root cause of a disease. And so I realized quickly as a PA in cardiology that this wasn't a satisfying path for me. I didn't want to give statins and ACE inhibitors and beta blockers my whole life. I wanted to understand at that time what was causing hypertension, what was causing atherosclerosis, which is the process of plaque formation that leads to heart attacks. And in order to do that, I had to really try and find some kind of root cause medicine. And I had to go back to medical school to be able to forge a path on my own as a doctoral, you know, as a full doctor. So that the first thing that I found was functional medicine. And people may be familiar with functional medicine and the work in that space. And it's a great set of knowledge that starts to pick apart the root cause of illness. But within the functional medicine paradigm, plants are held up as very valuable for humans. We're encouraged to eat the rainbow and we're told that plants have many valuable roles in the body. So my original training going back to medical school and within the functional medicine paradigm was that plants are very beneficial for humans. And so I was paleo at that time in my life and felt much better as a paleo eater. I was eating essentially organic paleo than I had as a raw vegan. So much before that time in my life, I was a raw vegan. I lost a lot of weight, had clear sarcopenia, muscle wasting, not the thing, added meat back in. Paleo was good, but I had persistent eczema that was pretty severe for a lot of my life and continued on a paleolithic diet. And, you know, I was learning functional medicine, going through their training. I'm a certified functional medicine practitioner. But throughout medical school and then residency at the University of Washington, my eczema continued. And throughout all my training, I knew that food was the lever. I knew there was still some food in my diet that was triggering autoimmunity. And I was just trying to figure out what it was. So I kept iterating 
low oxalate, low lectin, low salicylate, low histamine. And then the eczema would kind of come and go, but it never really got fully better. And so I was kind of at my wits end going, what am I doing wrong? I'm eating organic paleo. I'm eating the best diet that I can imagine. And I still have this pretty bad eczema to the point that it was like all over my back at times. It was severe. And then I heard Jordan Peterson on a podcast talking about this carnivore diet. And I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. Plants are valuable for humans. We need them, right? What about all the polyphenols and phytonutrients? And then I thought, maybe he's onto something here because one of the things that I've noticed throughout my medical training is that autoimmunity is where the money is. Chronic disease is autoimmune in nature, in my opinion, and infl inflammatory in nature. And those are really synonymous. And so anytime I hear of an anecdote or something that improves autoimmune disease, which is a very wide spectrum of disease, my ears perk up and I get really interested. So I was interested in what Jordan was saying. And despite my original skepticism, I dug into the research and what I found was so fascinating that I was like, I have to try this. When I started looking into plant toxins and all these kinds of things, I was like, oh man, maybe he's really onto something here. Maybe this idea is true. And thus began the last year and a half of a pretty much a strict carnivore diet and no satel carnivore diet for me. And wouldn't you know it, the eczema like resolved in the first two to three weeks. I felt much better emotionally. I didn't even know, I didn't even really believe that I had depression or anxiety, but within a few days of cutting out plants, I had just kind of this different view on the world. I was happier. I like to say the, the, the likelihood of honking at somebody in traffic index went way down. I was just a better person, you know? <laughs> the middle finger stayed relaxed during your drive? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The middle finger was like, just did this gradual relax. And I was like, man, what's going on here? And so that really intrigued me. I thought, this, there's something here because uh, my eczema is now gone. It's been sort of recurrent and persistent for the last eight years. It's now gone. My mood is better. I'm sleeping well. Mental clarity is there. There's something to this. And that was kind of the beginning. That was the hook for me. Like there's, there's more that I need to research. And believe me, it's been an incredible journey. It's a deep rabbit hole that we can go into. Yeah. So let's start down that rabbit hole uh, with a couple of basics, which is some of the classic objections people are going to sure. give, right? You know, I mean, I remember, you know, some of the classic paleo objections were like, all right, well, if our ancestors were so healthy, why was the, you know, average age lifespan 35? And you're like, all right, now, if you look at the whole picture, you know, people didn't make it past puberty. There was no, you know, urgent care for the saber tooth bite, right? Like, or whatever. There, there's so many factors involved in that. They actually lived very long if they made it past puberty into their, you know, 80s, 90s and beyond. Um, and so it's it, it, looking at a thing. So, a lot of people were going to hear this, and we'd love you to explain it to us in a way that we can understand maybe fourth grade terms, um, definitely include science, but okay, we need fiber. What about the gut? And the interesting thing is that the carnivore diet is so helpful for people with Crohn's. It almost resolves it for a lot of these people. So these people have been told like, oh, you know, you need fiber, all of this stuff. What about fiber? Why is that not important for you? Yeah. And before I dug into the, dig into the fiber, I'll just, I'll echo your point. It's so important to make this point. And so many people will critique carnivore and paleolithic diets, anything that looks to ancestral lenses of eating with the critiques about 
life expectancy or longevity. And you're so right. I had James Clement on my podcast recently, and he brought up this point that if indigenous peoples who are currently living make it to the age of 50, they live as long as us, but they experience a compression of morbidity, which is just a fancy term for they don't get chronic disease. They don't get hypertension. They don't get diabetes. They don't get heart disease. And cancers are exceedingly rare. And so these notions that our ancestors lived nasty, brutish, and short lives are so false. They're so false, and they're skewed by high rates of infant and childhood mortality. And as you're saying, if we look at indigenous peoples, they are paragons of health if they can avoid getting gored by uh, javelina or, you know. Or accidentally being like, I'll try that red berry, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, they go through famine, which can be great, as we know, in small doses. But if things get really bad, then they can get into issues. And so sanitation is an issue. Infections are an issue. Parasites are an issue. And so what we have now for humans is the ability to merge the best of both worlds, which I think is what you are doing, what Mark is doing, and what I'm trying to do and say, hey, look, we have sanitation. We have the ability to avoid infection. Most of our food is not going to be uh, parasite full. And we have the ability to get food the majority of the time when we want it. And we can avoid chronic disease if we mirror the other aspects of the way that these indigenous peoples are living. But having said that, I just wanted to emphasize that because it's such a cool point that I love that you brought up. Fiber is a crazy rabbit hole, and I'll try to do it in a non-technical way. But a lot of times when I talk about fiber, it, it gets kind of technical. So rein me in if I go too far into left field. So when we think about fiber, the first thing people think about is constipation or just being able to poop. I mean, you know, it's it, it's just a it's good for humans to be able to have regular, easy to pass bowel movements. And constipation is defined as more than bowel movement frequency. It's defined defined as straining with stool, pain. Uh, it can be accompanied by gas and bloating, though it's not always, and it's often accompanied by the use of laxatives. And I don't know why doctors are under the impression that fiber is beneficial for constipation because if you really look at the literature, it's not supported. It's just not supported. I think so where'd they get it from? I think that the misunderstanding comes from the fact that you can, you can create more bowel movements in somebody by giving them plant fiber. But if you really look at the research, there's no evidence that fiber decreases pain with defecation, bleeding, or use of laxatives. So basically, when we give people fiber who are constipated, a lot of the time, they just have more painful bowel movements or more difficult to pass bowel movements. It's not about having more bowel movements. It's about having movements of the bowels that are easy to pass, not, in, not painful, not requiring bleeding, and not requiring the use of laxatives. The, the flip side is also illustrative. When we remove fiber, people don't get constipated, right? And in fact, there's a really well-quoted study that's been talked about before, but it's it illustrates this point exactly. And it's in the American Journal or the World Journal of Gastroenterology from 2012. And the title of the study is basically Stopping or Reducing Dietary Fiber Resolves or Improves Idiopathic Constipation. So when we actually do interventional studies and we look at a group of 60 people in this study who are divided into three groups. One group eats fiber as normal, which is probably a moderate amount. One group reduces fiber and one group completely eliminates fiber. All 60 people have idiopathic constipation, which meaning doctors don't know what's causing it. The group that completely removed fiber, which was about 20 people, 
100% of those people had total resolution of their constipation and total resolution of gas and bloating and pain. So it's really striking the story that is told in the literature when we look. And I think that it comes from the fact that that when we give people fiber, they get more bowel movements, but they really, the literature does not support the notion that they get easier to pass bowel movements or they're sort of more pleasant or less painful. And then the flip side is also true when we remove fiber for so many people, their symptoms of bloating, pain, and other things associated with idiopathic constipation resolve. And that's probably one of the most reported things on a carnivore diet. I did a post today about that on my Instagram, and so many people were commenting, I have no bloating anymore. I had bloating for years on vegetables, and I have no bloating. And the gas, I mean, when I was a raw vegan, it was impossible to be around me. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> there goes I, your dating life. Forget well, that. <laughs> it, was, it was very difficult. You know, it was very difficult. The, the women that I dated at the time were saints. And I was a physician assistant, so I was working in a shared office with other people. And they had to they had to be around my gas. I mean, it's so there are, we tell stories about this now that that I'm really good friends with one of the practice managers. And he told me many years after the fact that the other PAs I worked with would complain to him all the time about my gas. And <laughs> oh, he was like, we can laugh about it now. But oh, poor Paul. <laughs> he was like, no, I mean, and he was like, what do you want me to do? Tell him like. What, what is the practice manager going to do? Like, dude, you can't have so much bad gas. Like, but I was, I was, I was raw vegan. I was trying to do the right thing. But anyway, I was eating lots of fiber, getting lots of gas, getting lots of bloating and, you know, lots of stools. And so I think that the, the misleading notion is that you can give someone more stools, but that's not the answer to constipation. And, and I, I know this from personal experience too. You know, now that I'm on a carnivore diet, I'll have an easy to pass bowel movement every morning, but it's much smaller than when I was eating plants. When I was eating plants, I didn't have trouble with constipation or diarrhea, but I would have multiple bowel movements a day. So you can give people more bowel movements with fiber, with plant fiber, but in people who have constipation, they have actually, a lot of times, they have a functional problem in there, potentially overgrowth of methane producing organisms or some sort of an inflammatory process affecting the neurologic system in the gut. And fiber doesn't fix that. And the, the bowel movements are still gonna be painful and hard to pass. So that's that's with constipation. Did I do okay? No, that's great. And I mean, people also, I'm glad you told us about your daily routine because people were <laughs> like, will you be able to poop on a carnivore diet? And, and, and on that note, there are people that I've interviewed, um, who have said, Hey, there might be an adjustment period as your gut gets used to it. Um, so have you heard that? Did you experience that oh, at yes. first as well? And, and tell us what that's like in case someone wants to go down this road, what they might expect. Oh yeah. So um, in the month of January, Joe Rogan's bowels are very famous because Joe Rogan is doing the carnivore diet this month and he's posted in, you know, very comedic Joe Rogan terms about his diarrhea on a carnivore diet. And I had that. And a lot of people have that. I think maybe 30 to 40% of people who do a strict carnivore diet get loose stool or diarrhea when they begin. And there are multiple theories about this, but it, it happens and then it usually resolves. There is an adjustment period. I think it has to do with a switchover of the gut flora and an adjustment of the small bowel to absorb the increased amounts of bile acids that are produced on a meat and fat and organs diet. And um, yeah, I think that some plant fibers affect the circulation or the recirculation of bile acids. And when you remove those, the small intestine is suddenly faced with reabsorbing lots more bile acids, which it usually does. 
it can, it adjusts and does that. But what we know about human physiology is if, if bile acids or bile salts, those are essentially synonymous, pass into the colon, they act as an osmotic um, as an osmotic or an osmotic cathartic or uh, agent. So they'll pull water into the colon and that's what causes diarrhea. So their bile salts are not supposed to end up in the colon and we produce more of them when we adjust our diet and the small intestine has to adjust to that. So that's a common thing for people. It usually goes away. There are a number of things that you can do to kind of mitigate that. You can try, try digestive enzyme supplements, lipase, uh, some people will have an improvement of, with ox bile, but if it's a bile acid malabsorption, that can also worsen it. So anyway, there I talk about all this stuff in my book. You can kind of adjust, and it's kind of a, an adjust. It's a it's kind of a transitional phase for people that resolves in the majority of cases. So pretty sure Joe Rogan's bowels will be just fine if he can make it through that phase. But it can be. It's a pretty big switch for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a huge switch. It's a more of a mental one, if anything, really. Um, Let's talk about another objection, which is, well, what about all these nutrients you're not getting? What about vitamin C? Vitamin C seems to be the big thing everyone always brings up. And I know you talked about it with Mark. I want to you know, give us a science explanation, but also we, uh, the way that you explain it, I, I, you, some of us lay people, again, we're just assuming like, well, our bodies don't make vitamin C. We need to take it. It's one of these essential nutrients. I mean, you're clearly you don't have scurvy at this point. So. I don't have scurvy. <laughs> so tell us about that. Tell us about nutrients, vitamin C, and we can go into some others too. Obviously, you're getting B12 and all of these things, oh, but yeah. um, nutrient deficiencies and or you know optimization being perhaps non-existent here. I know it's not. Tell us why it's not. Yeah. So if we really look at nutrient density, nutrient bioavailability. In plant versus animal foods, animal foods win hands down almost every time. Vitamin C is a fascinating exception that we can dive into in detail. And I think it's been incorrectly characterized in terms of how much we need to be optimal. But if we're thinking about, I mean, I can list them off. Basically, all the B vitamins, so thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, pyridoxine, B12, folate, biotin, much more present in animal foods, animal meat and organs than they are in plant foods. That's This is not really debatable. Minerals, magnesium, potassium, zinc, iron, selenium, uh, boron, much more bioavailable in animal foods because often they are chelated, which means a large molecule will kind of bite them and hold them in plants. And these are molecules like phytic acid or oxalic acid, which is oxalates, and that's a whole other genre of plant toxins that we can get into. But the bioavailability of zinc in, in plant foods is abysmal, and there's plenty of studies showing this. They've done studies with oysters, which are a very rich source of zinc, and they can give someone an oyster, and you'll see the serum level of zinc rise sharply. And they're going to give somebody an oyster with black beans, and it's attenuated. It's like maybe 10% of the absorption because of the phytic acid in black beans. And then they give someone oysters with black beans and tortillas, and they get no change in the zinc level in the blood, meaning that the phytic acid, the chelating molecules in the plants completely prevented the absorption of this important mineral. Zinc so they're like acting as anti-nutrients. It's almost act- like the whole grain thing, right? It's yeah. this, it's, it's uh, canceling out each other. You think you're doing <laughs> a good job yes. and then yeah. you're, okay. People say like, oh, mag- almonds have magnesium. Yeah, that's really not uh, an accurate representation of our body's ability to absorb it. When I was raw vegan, I was eating tons of almonds and I was severely magnesium deficient because the 
the magnesium, it's a divalent cation, meaning it's a mineral with a plus two charge, like all the other minerals I listed earlier. And all of those are bound up in plants, especially in plant seeds, which are full of these anti-nutrients, phytic acid and oxalic acid being two of them, that prevent our absorption of them. So when we're thinking about vitamins and minerals, when we're thinking about nutrients that the human body, micronutrients that the human body needs to thrive, animal foods are absolutely the best foods on the planet. And I say this in the book, I think I've said it on another podcast, animal foods are the real superfoods. And if you know anything about me, I'll just clarify that for this for people. I don't advocate for consuming a carnivore diet as just muscle meat. I advocate for consuming a carnivore diet that at least thinks about consuming organs. Because if we look at the way that, that nutrients, and this is B vitamins, minerals, things like carnitine and carnosine and taurine and other sort of unique nutrients in animal foods are distributed. They're distributed differently throughout the animal, meaning that one muscle might have a little different than another muscle. A heart is going to have a little more coenzyme Q10. A liver has much more folate, much more biotin, and much more riboflavin. Kidneys are rich sources of folate and riboflavin. Uh, thymus is a much richer source of um, certain nutrients, pancreas. And so people might be kind of saying, oh, I'm never going to eat those things. And I think that you don't need to eat all of the organs, but at least eating liver and a few of the other organs in addition to our uh, our muscle meat really improves our nutritional status as humans. And thankfully, there are lots of ways to do this now that don't even include the organs. I eat the organs, the real organs, and I eat most of them uh, on a daily basis. But there are now desiccated organ supplements, and, and they make it possible. People are making jerkies or U.S. Wellness Meats has a liver worst with oil, with uh, liver and heart ground into it. There are lots of ways people are Yeah, White Oak out. Pastures does a yeah. patty that has a mixture so you can like mix yes. it into your meat. So even if you're listening and you're not considering going in carnivore, you should consider organs. And, you know, I was talking to a carnivore guest. We had um, this woman, Kate Kretzinger, and she just had changed her whole entire life. I mean, from like migraines and bloody noses and uh, you can only imagine. And I'm sure you, you, you've experienced it. And it completely has changed her life. And so when I was doing a carnivore experiment, I went and got a bunch of grass-fed beef liver, which is so cheap, by the way. Hello. Uh -huh. I mean, oh my gosh. And I ate like one morning. I knew it was going to be a long day. I'm not usually hungry in the morning, but I was like, I'm just going to cook up a little like two ounce or whatever piece of liver. I was on fire all day long, man. I just like 10 hours of just w went through a workout, had my whole day. And I was like, oh my God, I maybe I need to, <laughs> I need to start really medicinally uh, adding this into my life. It is amazing how I felt. And while I didn't like the taste at first, even though I like chicken liver, I kind of, again, just did it in a medicinal way. And God, it's such a superfood. Now I always keep little chunks of it in my freezer ready to go. And there, that's a Liver is so powerful and people can freeze it. There's, you know, there's, there was a hashtag on Instagram, like frozen liver gang we were joking about. And, you know, one of the things I've done in the past is you can freeze it and cut it up into small bits and chew them or just swallow them. And so there's lots of ways to get the organs. Certainly our ancestors ate organs. I just went hunting this past weekend in Texas and I was able to, uh, to get a deer with my bow. And you better believe I have deer liver, deer spleen, deer heart, deer pancreas in my fridge. And I'm eating them all respectfully and with a great amount of gratitude. But that's exactly what our ancestors did. And it, it's just such a synchronicity. There are unique nutrients there. It's respectful to the animals that we are, that we are, that are nourishing us and it's less waste. And it's, it, it creates this nutrient, um, comprehensiveness that is absent when we're eating only muscle meat. So back to your question about vitamin C, fascinating, 
fascinating rabbit hole to go down. So vitamin C is ascorbic acid. And the first thing to know is that there is vitamin C in animal foods. And fresh meat is a known anti-scorbutic, meaning that if you give meat to someone who has scurvy, they will be cured of scurvy very quickly. The tales we hear of sailors on the ocean are confounded by the fact that it's very hard to keep meat fresh on the ocean for weeks to months. And that's that's kind of a unique human problem. And so what they had to do was take vegetables or fruit, specifically in the case of limes and limeys, and they could take fruit, which had vitamin C, and that would preserve better over the course of the trip. But most of what they had in terms of meat was salted and dried. And we know that that process of curing meats will degrade much of the vitamin C and think it can lead to um, an absence of vitamin C, which is leads to scurvy. Now, so had they had fresh meat, yes, it would have been a different story. It would have been an absolutely different story. Meat is an anti-scorbutic. It cures scurvy. So there is vitamin C in meat. And we can talk about how much vitamin C we need in a second. But there have been some uh, fascinating studies that were done in the 1930s and 1940s on conscientious objectors to the war. And what they found was that basically they gave these people scurvy. Uh, by depriving them of all vitamin C. And it took between, you know, a month or two, and they developed bleeding of the gums and petechiae, which are little red spots on the skin. Scurvy is essentially the manifestations of incorrect collagen formation. Vitamin C has multiple roles in the human body, but it's one of its important roles is in... Uh, the hydroxylation step, so the, uh, the addition of a hydroxyl group to a single strand uh, of a collagen molecule in order to form a triple helix. Collagen is three strands kind of all twisted together, all braided together in a sense. And in order to make the mature collagen strand, you need vitamin C for the hydroxylation reaction. And so if we don't have enough vitamin C, our collagen all kind of falls apart. And so all the tissues that are made of collagen fall apart. That's why people get bleeding gums, their teeth fall out, they get... Um, you know, spots on the skin because the blood vessels are kind of falling apart. So my, uh, my teeth are very healthy. My gums are very healthy. You know, I've been to the dentist, like clearly I have no manifestations of scurvy. Um, and when, when we did these conscientious subjector experiments, which would never be repeated, people got scurvy and they looked to see how much vitamin C they needed to reverse it. And the lowest dose they gave these men was 10 milligrams a day and they, their scurvy reversed at 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day. So it's possible that less than 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day is enough to prevent scurvy. And there was no clinical difference in the men who got 10 versus 70 versus 200 milligrams of vitamin C a day, meaning at least from a scurvy perspective, 10 milligrams is enough to prevent it. So this is very clear. This has been documented. I've done a number of podcasts with other people in the space kind of debating this, and they'll say, but the other benefits of vitamin C, the antioxidant, quote unquote, benefits of vitamin C are achieved at higher doses. And I would debate this pretty strongly. Now, vitamin C is held very closely in our American Western ethos. But if you really look at the interventional data here, it's not clear that humans benefit from uh, from larger doses of vitamin C from an antioxidant or oxidative stress perspective. Um, so I'll describe one study that illustrates this very clearly. The name of the study is Effective Increasing Fruit and Vegetable Intake by Dietary Intervention on Nutritional Markers uh, and Attitudes to Dietary Change, or randomized trial. So this is a randomized interventional trial. It was done in, I believe it was done in Sweden or Denmark, um, 
what does it say here? Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, somewhere in, actually somewhere in the United Kingdom. And they took men and women who had low reported intake of fruit and vegetables, so less than three portions of fruit and vegetables a day. And they were estimated to be getting about 70, 70 milligrams of vitamin C a day. And they increased their fruit and vegetable consumption in one group and the other group just continued eating a very meager amount of fruits and vegetables. So they added more than a pound of fruit and vegetables per day to one group. And they that group also had 300 milliliters of fruit juice per day for 12 weeks, for 12 weeks. And so what they estimated was that by increasing fruit and vegetable consumption in that in that one group, their vitamin C intake went up from 70 to 270 milligrams a day. And their plasma vitamin C level increased 35%. But when they looked at markers of antioxidant capacity, DNA damage, and vascular health, there was no difference between the two groups. So this illustrates a number of things. And this is one of the major criticisms I have when people say that we need fruit and vegetables to be optimally healthy. There are a number of trials like this that are 12, 11 weeks, four weeks, where there's one group of people who are not eating any fruits and vegetables, and another group who eat a pound plus of fruit and vegetables per day, like this study. And at the end of these studies, it's very clear, there's five or six of these studies that show no changes in inflammatory markers, things like HSCRP, no change in oxidative stress markers, which we can measure with things like malondialdehyde or DNA damage with 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine. The, the names of those labs are not important, but that's a really striking finding. And what's cool about this study is they showed that you could, you could quadruple, essentially quadruple or triple the amount of vitamin C in someone's diet, and they would have no change in markers of antioxidant capacity, DNA damage, vascular health, inflammation, and all those fruits and vegetables, all those plant phytochemicals that are supposed to be so good for us had no effect on their blood markers after 12 weeks. So I'm, and if you look at interventional studies with vitamin C, they've pretty much failed to show any benefit. It's misleading because there's a lot of epidemiology out there suggesting that people who have higher levels of vitamin C in their blood do better. But as we know with epidemiology, what else are people who have higher levels of vitamin C in their body doing? Are they exercising more, more sunlight, doing other things which could be having good outcomes, which is why epidemiology is so misleading. When we look at interventional studies with both fruit and vegetables, polyphenols, vitamin C, we see a very different story. And Pretty much, there's a strong amount of evidence to suggest that vitamin C supplementation doesn't do anything for humans. We need a little bit, but my suggestion is that we don't need anything like what we're being told we need. Megadosing is probably bad for humans, and the amount that we can get eating fresh meat and organs in a day appears to be just fine for us and essentially optimal. Hmm. So fascinating. Let's talk about lipids for a minute. So, you know, back in the day, so many people, even now, it happened to a friend recently, they go to a doctor, the cholesterol seems high because they're on the old paradigm and they're sending the person to the cardiologist without a CAD screening. The CAD screening is zero. The, the person's like, okay, F you, uh, my triglyceride to HDL <laughs> ratio is fine. So we have a new way of evaluating it now. How do we move forward and evaluate, or how would you evaluate the lipid panel of someone on carnivore? Because I'm assuming if you took a standard lipid panel, a, a regular doctor would have a freak out. So what does yours look like if you've tested it? But if not, what would it look like? And let's talk about what a uninformed doctor might have concerns about and why they're not concerns. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I've tested mine multiple times. It's quite fascinating. And I've done a number of podcasts on my podcast, Fundamental Health, with Dave Feldman, Nadir Ali, and other cardiologists 
talking about the flaws in the LDL-centric model of cardiovascular disease. One of the greatest things I saw on Instagram in the last few weeks was somebody else posted this. Somebody had asked them a question and said, will, will a ketogenic diet raise my bad cholesterol? And the response on Instagram was, you don't have bad cholesterol, you have bad information. And I thought that's so true. LDL has been billed as quote unquote bad cholesterol. And one of my crusades is to really help reverse this. It's just not true. But the science is nuanced. And so let's think about this for a moment. LDL, what does it do in the human body? It's low-density lipoprotein. It is essentially a a product of VLDL, very low-density lipoprotein, which becomes IDL and then becomes LDL in the circulation as these lipoprotein molecules serve the very valuable role of dropping off cholesterol, which is a steroid molecule, and triglycerides to the tissues of the body. Lipoproteins in the human body, VLDL, IDL, LDL, HDL, are buses that move around the human body ferrying precious cargo. They're moving building blocks for our cells. What do our cells do with cholesterol? They make membranes. If we don't have enough cholesterol, we basically die, right? There's a very interesting genetic condition called Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome. It's a congenital condition, and it's a defect in one of the enzymes in the cholesterol synthesis pathway, which is called the mevalonate pathway. Now, people who have this condition have very increased rates of infectious disease. And this is quite interesting because they have very low LDL. And in fact, LDL is known to serve a role in the immune system. It I just want to interrupt. I, I, it's so funny you said that because I, I did interview a guy. I wrote a book on evolution, and he did talk about LDL and how it's protective. And uh, uh, you know, then I look at my LDL, and I'm like, I never get sick, Paul. Ever. Like yeah. it's so rare. And um, also back to just real quick, when you say, you know, if we don't have any cholesterol, we'll die. You know, we talk about like the myelin sheaths and people who are dealing with MS and not eating a low fat diet, or you see someone who's grown up as a vegan or vegetarian and they don't get their period ever until they're 40, or, you know, they go through early menopause at age 40 or something like that. So it's so essential. And I, I yeah, let's, sorry, I just want to interrupt on that, but the LDL again, seems to be very protective, like a po- such a positive thing. It's a totally, a protective molecule. Um, so LDL is acts like a sponge for bacterial toxins. There's a bacterial toxin called endotoxin, which is lipopolysaccharide, which comes from gram-negative bacteria. There's another alpha toxin from Staph aureus, and LDL kind of soaks those up and prevents them from circulating in our body. There's fascinating experiments. So in 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 humans with Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome, if we give them cholesterol they do much better from an infectious disease standpoint. They get much better when we give them cholesterol. So we have to actually infuse cholesterol into their body. And as you're suggesting, cholesterol, like colloquially cholesterol, quote unquote, means all of the lipoproteins in our body. But the more technical definition or term is that cholesterol is a steroid backbone molecule, which is a precursor for all of the hormones, all the steroid hormones in our body, things like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, aldosterone, things that are pretty important to normal human function. So, you know, people may know that statin's job is to inhibit the production of this steroid backbone, meaning a statin inhibits HMG-CoA reductase, which is an enzyme in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. In a way, a statin mimics this Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome. It's not to the same degree, but do we really think 
that this is a whole, this is a real bugaboo I've gotten myself into now. I'll have to really, you know, work my way out of it in a moment. But <laughs> do we really think it's a good idea or the best idea to inhibit the production of a molecule in the human body that is in every single cell membrane, as you suggested, that's a part of the myelin sheath on a neuron that is a precursor for all of our hormones? No, there's got to be a better way. Do statins decrease cardiovascular risk? Absolutely, they do. Do they do it by lowering LDL? Probably not because there are multiple other classes of drugs that also lower LDL that don't have any cardiovascular outcomes. Statins appear to have what are called pleiotropic effects, and they look to be a little bit anti-inflammatory, and that may be the way that they actually have a cardiovascular effect, but it's probably not through LDL. So that's a whole nother podcast that we can get into about the, the statin bugaboo. But we definitely know that there's pretty compelling evidence that when they give people statins, they get crankier, they get more angry, they do more homicidal crimes, and there's an increased rate of dementia. And this is why are we not surprised, especially with the mm -hmm. lipophilic statins, the statins that can cross the blood-brain barrier. Because if we inhibit the formation of cholesterol in the human brain, we can't make membranes as well in the human brain. And that could certainly lead to problems with neurological functioning. Okay, that was an aside. Back to the lipoproteins, back to LDL, HDL, VLDL. These are buses that move precious cargo around the body. We know that LDL has an immunologic role. In rodents, if we increase the amount of cholesterol in the body or we increase the amount of LDL, they are more resistant to infectious insults. So we can raise the amount of LDL in a mouse or a rat and give them a bacteria and they can it, they can handle much higher doses of bacterial toxins than their cohort who don't have as high an LDL before they die. Similarly, if we lower the amount of LDL in a rat, they die much more quickly when we give them a bacterial insult. And then intriguing to note that as you're suggesting, LDL is protective and there are tons and tons of epidemiology studies that show that in elderly people, higher levels of LDL are associated with greater longevity. So this story is not as cut and dry as mainstream cardiovascular pundits would have us suggest. There's got to be something else going on. And this is what I talk about in the book in great detail. Basically, LDL, I believe, is the fireman that shows up to the crime or the policeman. They show up to a fire or scene of a crime, but they didn't cause the crime. They're reacting to it. LDL circulates in the human body, and then we know that it moves through the endothelium, which is the inner layer of the blood vessel, into a layer of cells called the intima. And it's in the intima that it can get stuck. And it gets stuck in the intima on proteoglycans, which is another protein there. And if it gets stuck too long in the intima, it appears to possibly become oxidized. And people may have heard the term oxidized LDL. Now, when LDL gets oxidized, it changes the look of the, the proteins on the surface that act as tagging molecules, and it can start to look like a pathogen to the immune cells there, the macrophages that then ingest it. And that may be how the beginning of a plaque or an atherosclerotic lesion forms. But not every single particle of LDL that gets stuck in our body, not, not every single particle of LDL that moves into the intimal space gets stuck. So what is going on here? And I think I talk about this in detail in the book. I think it's insulin resistance. I think it's systemic inflammation. And we know that in states of hyperinsulinemia, 
in states of insulin resistance, which are coupled with hyperinsulinemia, so high levels of this hormone insulin, that proteoglycan matrix in the intima becomes enriched and more sticky, and the LDL particles become more sticky. They become enriched in a particle, in a molecule called APOC3. And so basically, it's like the LDL and the inside of the blood vessels gets coated in Velcro when we're insulin resistant. But it's not the case for everyone. If we're not insulin resistant, the LDL is slick, the inside of the vessel is slick, and more LDL is probably protective because it's doing all those immunologic things. But for people who are insulin resistant, which is a very large proportion of the population, more LDL might be giving more fuel to the fire. But it's not the LDL that's causing the plaque. It's the LDL that's kind of getting pulled into the plaque because there's this pathologic insulin resistance. And so there's a great study that I talk about in the book, which says that if we really look at metrics of metabolic health, waist circumference, blood pressure, uh, fasting insulin levels, things like this, only 12% of the United States population is metabolically healthy. Now, is it any wonder that LDL looks like it's correlated with cardiovascular disease when 88% of the population has a sticky LDL and a sticky blood vessel? It's just, of course, when the whole population is sick, everything looks different. And that's what I've learned as I've gone deeper down this rabbit hole with regard to all chronic disease is that so many studies are confounded by insulin-resistant phenotypes, which are pervasive in Western populations. And unless we are very careful or looking at interventional studies, epidemiology may be very misleading because most people are insulin-resistant. So, it's, it's a quite a complex thing. And in the book, I illustrate it with this a, a very cool set of graphs that I'll tell you about, and then we'll move on. So there's a, there's a study called the Framingham study. People may be familiar with this. It's a large epidemiology study from Framingham, Massachusetts. And if you look at the Framingham study data as a whole, the higher the LDL level in your blood, the higher the rate of cardiovascular disease, okay? And that's kind of the cut and dry story that many would suggest says LDL is a risk factor, we need to lower LDL. But a very interesting thing happens when you stratify LDL versus cardiovascular risk by insulin resistance. And the way that I did that in the book is I looked at the HDL levels. We look at the levels of HDL, and HDL is high density protein, and so I split that one line. So it's hard because we're not doing a visual podcast and you know people can see this graph in the book. But the original graph I suggest is you know on the y-axis is LDL and or, or on the y-axis is cardiovascular disease rate and on the x-axis is LDL number, right? So it goes up from like 100 to 220 milligrams per deciliter. But in the second graph, I broke that line of LDL versus cardiovascular disease into four lines. And each of those lines represents a different level of HDL. And what you see is that the lines have very different slopes depending on your level of HDL. So it's not four lines that are parallel. The lowest levels of HDL, which are the people who are probably the most insulin resistant, because we know this is the dyslipidemiology, the dyslipidemia of insulin resistance, a low HDL and a high triglyceride is the dyslipidemia, dyslipidemia of insulin resistance. People with the lowest levels of HDL have a curve that looks much like the first one. The higher the LDL, the more cardiovascular disease. But when we look at people who have a high LDL, an LDL greater than 85, which is where mine is, and I've checked my LDL, HDL multiple times. Me too. When we look at people who have an HDL of greater than 85, the line is flat meaning that as you increase LDL, there is no increased cardiovascular risk. So what is going on here? It's that insulin resistance is everything. 
and that our cardiovascular risk is completely dependent on insulin resistance or the surrogate marker of insulin resistance in this case. So, and this is not really controversial. It's like this is, but this is what's being missed by mainstream physicians. And you asked a great question, which I'll circle back to now is how do you interpret a lipid panel? I interpret a lipid panel in the context of insulin sensitivity. So the first thing I want to see on the panel, and you already mentioned this, is triglyceride to HDL ratio. That is the first thing I want to see because that, more than anything, on a lipid panel tells me a degree of insulin sensitivity. If I have a fasting insulin, that's great. If I have a C-peptide, that's great. If I have a, I can calculate a HOMA IR from a fasting glucose. So there are a number of things I can look at. And I'm also going to look at an HSCRP and other markers of insulin sensitivity. So I'm I think that the flaw with mainstream medicine now is that we are looking at lipid panels in a vacuum. If I'm going to get a lipid panel on someone, I want to know what their thyroid is doing. I want to know what their iron levels are. I want to know what their inflammatory markers are. I want to know what their insulin sensitivity is with all those other markers I looked at. And I want to know if there's anything else that's going to tell me that that I, I need a context for the for the LDL. I need a context for the whole lipid panel. And well, and that's the thing is you're looking at it from a functional context, right. and that's the important thing. You're looking at the different variables that most people don't link into. And so glad you mentioned thyroid because not to make this that discussion, but when I was severely hypothyroid and untreated and not doing well, for the first time in my life, my lipid panel was did look like a disaster. Yeah. And anyone would have said, "Uh oh, we got to why you know do this," but it's like they weren't seeing. Once my thyroid levels were resolved and good, everything went back to normal, you know, and people go, oh, high blood pressure. Really? How's your thyroid doing? High blood pressure is, you know, basically insulin resistance, right? A lot of the time. So, um, and gosh, back to the, I was insulin resistant and pre-diabetic at one point and I had thick, sticky blood. It is such a horrible feeling of inflammation. And, um, wow, it's just a cascade of a domino effect of, of a nightmare in the body. You didn't need a statin when your lipid panel looked bad. You needed someone to treat the root cause. which was your thyroid. And that's the way that I think everybody's going wrong or so much of Western medicine is going wrong looking at thyroid, looking at lipid panels. And I detail this in the book as well. The formation of ketones from acetyl-CoA and the the pathway, the mevalonate pathway, share a common root. So the mevalonate pathway can be used to make ketones. And we know that LDL will rise on a ketogenic diet in a lot of people because the biochemical pathways are the similar, right? They're the same. And we know that when we fast, there's good studies that say that when we fast, LDL rises. Why does LDL rise when we fast? Well, because we're producing more acetyl-CoA, which is a precursor for beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that is a shared pathway with cholesterol. And so we're having more LDL when we fast, which is probably a very good thing, but does mainstream medicine mean to tell me that we are increasing our cardiovascular risk when we fast? Why would the body put more of an atherogenic particle when we're fasting? That's a very ancestrally consistent thing. So we're fat, we're getting heart attacks from fasting now. This just doesn't make any sense. There, <laughs> there has to be another piece of this equation. And that's what everyone is missing is the insulin resistance piece and interpreting that LDL in the context. So you asked if I check my labs, I have multiple times. My triglycerides are usually about 45 milligrams per deciliter. My HDL is usually about 95 milligrams per deciliter. So I like to see a triglyceride to HDL ratio of 0.5 
in people or at least less than one. So I don't want, I don't want triglycerides to be higher than HDL. And then my LDL has been high. I mean, my LDL is high by many standards. And I think that's a good thing. I joke with some of my friends, LDL of 400 or bust, you know, like, thank God my, <laughs> my LDL isn't 400, but my LDL is usually 200 to 300 milligrams per deciliter. But I have people that I connect with on Instagram who have an LDL of 800. I've seen LDLs of 500. And these people go and they get coronary artery calcium scores and they are zero. Zero. And that's, zero. let's put that out there to everyone. If anyone ever tells you, you need to go on a statin, I don't care if it's the best cardiologist at UCLA. No, you get a CAD screening. And if it's zero, you don't need it. They're evaluating it improperly. This has happened to so many people I know. In fact, it happened to a friend of mine who finally got to the right doctor who was like, you've never had a cholesterol issue. You've been steered, the, you know, you've been told this story for years being threatened with statins. And he made a t-shirt that said, my HDL to triglyceride ratio is excellent. And like, where's it <laughs> now? Exactly. Um, and you're going to so be important. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I could talk to you so for hours about this. This is yeah. so fascinating. And I'm so glad you're sharing your lipids with us. I mean, that's I've done all my blood work and I talked about it on a blood work podcast. So I've done inflammatory markers and kidney function and liver function and thyroid function and, and iron studies. And I've done GI studies on myself. So yeah, I wanted to be the canary in the coal mine for people. And I've talked about all this on my social media in the past. And yeah, I've done all that stuff and it, it all looks great. And you know, there are pitfalls like we, like we do with anything, you know, I think if we get too much protein without enough fat or we could, we might get constipated on a carnivore diet, but, um, and if we get, if we don't get enough salt, there can be issues on a carnivore diet. So there are some pitfalls, um, that I look for. And I think, you know, there are rare people who have polymorphisms in terms of iron absorption, who need to wash their ferritin and need to do phlebotomy, no matter what they're doing, if they have hemochromatosis. But by and large, the majority of labs I see from people on carnivore diets, unless they're doing it in a way that I would not recommend, look look great, other than an LDL that's sky high, and we just unpack that in a huge way. And that just means they're going to live a long time. They're not going to have you know, problems with, uh, hormones, you know, they'll probably have lots of substrate for hormones and, you know, they're insulin sensitive, but it really bothers me when cardiologists are fear mongering around low carbohydrate diets saying they're going to raise LDL. It's just like, you know, you guys are all really smart, like expand the lens. We can't look at LDL in a vacuum. So, so well said. Um, Obviously, your brain function is on fire. Anyone listening is like this. <laughs> and I dare you to Google Paul because he's glowing, he's healthy, you're athletic, you, know, you surf, you get out there. Uh, there's no shortage of energy with you. Um, oh. I'm so glad you wrote the Carnivore Code. This has helped so many people. Let's talk about some success stories. There are some miraculous shit going on out there. I, I mean, know. aside from your eczema going away, give us some highlights of some stories, because I think that if there's someone listening and they've got a condition, again, I know someone with Crohn's uh, who, you know, carnivore is just uh, solved it completely. And uh, again, just other unexplained autoimmune issues. I know you've dealt with hundreds of patients, so yeah. I'd love to hear some of those. So my eczema went away. I have multiple patients who have had debilitating eczema that got better or completely resolved on a carnivore diet. I saw two twins the other day, uh, young men who were twins. They said their eczema was head to toe. It was so bad. And they went carnivore. It's now 95% better. It's like, what? Like they were at the verge of, you know, taking immuno immunologic drugs. Like dermatologists would have given them biologic drugs, you know, immune suppressants, right? Which have horrible side effects. These are young men 
who are going to have horrible outcomes from that long term. I have multiple clients who have ulcerative colitis and Crohn's that have improved, resolved on a carnivore diet. Um, some of the most striking are um, I've got some people with very debilitating psychiatric disease that has resolved completely on a carnivore diet. So I have multiple patients with bipolar that's gotten significantly better, multiple patients with suicidality and depression completely resolved on a carnivore diet, multiple patients with anxiety, debilitating anxiety, significantly better on a carnivore diet. And then I have clients and people who have had psoriasis resolved, lupus resolved. So I worked with two girls who are uh, very open about this on Instagram. They both had lupus diagnosed with positive ANA antibodies and their symptoms went away completely on a carnivore diet and their titers are now zero, meaning that laboratory evidence of lupus is now gone just gone from their body. So, um, yeah, I mean, the list goes on fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, insomnia. It's, it's amazing. And I'm not going to claim that the carnivore is a panacea because I think it's unique. It's nuanced for individuals. And sometimes there are things that persist in the gut that we have to go after, but as a very simple intervention, and I would urge people to, to examine my work and look at the way that I recommend doing carnivore. As I said, it's not just ribeye steaks, that can work in the short term, but I really think we need to do nose to tail and we need to think about, you know, calcium sources, et cetera. It's all in the book. Um, it's, it's a pretty powerful tool and there's a, there's definitely a selection bias with what I'm going to say, but you know, so many of my clients say carnivore is the best thing I've ever done for X, Y, Z. And again, that's a selection bias. They're finding me, they're working with me. They know that I'm, you know, very interested in this and I think about it all day long, but there are lots of people who are finding great help with this. And so, you know, it's funny. I did a, I did a podcast with Brad Kearns this morning and I, Oh, well we, I mean, you know, he's a, he's, he's family. We love, him. I know, right. I was like, <laughs> he's, a, I was he's, like a, he's one of us. Yeah. I'm podcasting with Elle this afternoon. He's like, Oh, that's cool. You know, I'm not urging everyone to give up all plants. But what I am saying is that animal foods are the richest source of nutrients on the planet and plants have toxins. And it's pretty clear that for a lot of people, plants can be triggering inflammation and autoimmunity. So if people are listening to this and they're not kicking as much butt as they want, it might be that plants are harming you or people have autoimmune diseases not getting better. It could be the plants and whether people want to do it a carnivore elimination diet, which is temporary, or in the book, I call it a clean carnivore reset. Uh, you know, a temporary elimination of plants can be so powerful. Uh, elimination diets in general are powerful. And I just want people to know that there is a spectrum of plant toxicity. And it's quite clear that for so many people, full elimination of plants is it's pretty profound. And for some people, they only have to cut out some plants, which is great, you know, or they have yeah, I mean, to cut some out people get a resolve through AIP or just going yes. paleo and cutting exactly. out the junk. And that's great. But like you said, if you keep going down the road and yeah. you're getting cleaner and cleaner, and like you said, you know, now is it a histamine thing? Is it oxalate? It can drive you crazy because you're like, what do I eat? Right. It can be a, just a nightmare. If you are not resolving it as you go down this road, then you might need to end up with a carnivore code. And that's what I want people to know is that it's safe, it's sustainable. I've been doing it a year and a half. It's enjoyable. Yeah, you're gonna you might miss avocado, but I bet you can put that back in later, you know, or for whoever. And you know, it's safe, sustainable, and we're we're thriving eating this way. And it's so frustrating for me because the opposite is being being promulgated in the mainstream media that animal foods are going to harm you. People are going away from it. And I fear that people are going to get malnourished, micronutrient deficient, and they're going to have worsening of autoimmunity if these plant compounds are in fact what's triggering them in that case. And they're fearful of meat. There's so much we eat at a very emotional level. People have become fearful of meat. 
And they're just, and they think that plants are teddy bears. And I think it's the complete opposite. You know, plants yeah, are prickly. Plants are prickly. And some people can tolerate some plants. And some people have a better ability to, to detoxify plants. But plants are prickly. And really, animal foods are the real teddy bears in this case. Like that animal, somebody, you know, like when I was out hunting, animals can run away from you. They are hard for our ancestors to hunt. And in general, they have defense mechanisms. Um, and they don't develop toxins like plants do, but plants are stuck in the ground. They've developed spikes. People see this when they go out to the desert and they see cacti. What we don't see are like the little chemical spikes that nearly every plant on the planet has developed because otherwise it would have just been eaten to death by other animals. It's a very delicate ecosystem, but plants are quite prickly when we really get down to it. So fascinating. So Carnivore Code comes out tomorrow. Tell us a couple of things. First of all, where can we find the book? And then secondly, how can we work with you? And do you work with people all over or do we need to see you in person? Tell us how we can gain from this if someone's out there and they're like, man, I need this guy's help. Yeah. So probably the best place to get the book is going to be Amazon or wherever books are sold. It should be available everywhere. People can go to my website, which is carnivoremd.com. I've got a link to the book there. Uh, there's a landing page for the book, which is thecarnivorecodebook.com, but it should be everywhere on February the 11th. And I definitely work with people. I really love working with clients. Um, it's been really fun building my podcast and doing more of the social media stuff over the last year, but I love working with clients. It kind of keeps me grounded and it teaches me so much to see where people are kind of stumbling and how to help this or that. And I've got some people who are, you know, pretty sick and we're just trying to figure out what they need. Um, and so people can reach out to me through my website. There's a form, they can send me an email and we can get them set up with a virtual consult. So most of the consults I do are virtual. So anywhere in the world people are, I can work with them. Oh, excellent. Paul Saladino, thank you so much for joining us again. We're so excited about this book, The Carnivore Code. And yeah, look forward to all of the work you're doing in the future and all these success stories that are going to come down the pike. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. You too. Have a great day. And everyone else, we'll see you next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners. No dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered with our no dairy vodka sauce made from avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options, from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love.